This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Budget Wallop, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim joins us to discuss the city's massive 10.7% property tax increase. Plus Trudeau and China. Did Chinese donors really want a statue of Mao erected in Canada? And cell phone surprise. Why are Canadian telcos about to charge you more for roaming fees? And driven to the poorhouse, get ready as BC's carbon tax goes from 11 cents a litre at the pump to 37 cents. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on property taxes. Last night, the City of Vancouver passed its $1.97 billion operating budget. With it comes a 10.7% increase in property taxes. It's one of the highest property taxes uh, in living memory. Joining me now to discuss city finances is Ken Sim, the Mayor of Vancouver. Mr. Sim, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jazz. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's uh, get to the issue at hand. First and foremost, why such a large increase? Yeah, I mean, look, maybe I'll step back a bit. First of all, we understand that, um, uh, look, we're, we're going through an affordability challenge here with residents across the city. And we, look, we, we understand that this sucks. Um, and we're not the only municipality struggling with these inflationary challenges. It's uh, cities right across the region. And um, I guess the, the big thing, uh, getting to your question, um, in addition to inflation, we uh, as the city of Vancouver uh, have seen the underfunding of core services for over a decade now. And so something had to be done. Um, you know, I, I, I use the analogy of a leaky roof. Um, the, the roof of uh, the city of Vancouver has been leaking for over a decade and uh, no, no one's really bothered to fix it. And we have a choice. Do we fix it now or do we kick it down the road and make it a bigger problem for someone else in the future? When, you say, the- when you say underfunding of core services, what specifically are we talking about here? Uh, you know, you can name a bunch, uh, the, uh, police services, Vancouver fire, uh, roads, snow removal, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, you, you can just walk around the city. Uh, we have potholes everywhere, uneven sidewalks, uh, garbage pickup, um, you know, neighborhoods, uh, going through a lot of challenges right now, uh, infrastructure deficits, uh, you've had the side of the building of the aquatic center fall off. We've had Kitts Pool close for uh, an entire season. Uh, the seawalls crumbling. So there are a lot of challenges that uh, have been um, basically not uh, dealt with uh, with the previous administration, and so, we're dealing with it now. So if, if if that was neglected, I know your colleague Mike Klassen was on the show, I believe, last week, and he had mentioned that there was a 25% cut to maintenance, the maintenance budget as well, about 10 years ago. Um, if If that work wasn't being done where was the money going you know that that you can dig around and you can bring up a, a whole host of issues whether or not we um you know whether or not we should have been funding them um you know it, it, it's hard for me to say um without having the last 10 years worth of budgets in in front of us but uh what i can tell you is this uh, this is not going to be an ongoing thing. Like it, it, we, we will not and we cannot have this type of increase in property taxes year over year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes against what we're about. And so, you know, and we can talk about the future um, and, uh, and our four-year plan. But I, I, I want to zoom out a little bit because a lot of people are focused on the headline number of, oh, my God, 10.7%. And I agree. It is, you know, it, it is incredibly high. But when you zoom out, what we're talking about here is if you own the, an average condo in the city of Vancouver, this property tax increase represents $0.34 cents per day. If you have the average single-family home in Vancouver, it amounts the increase amounts to $0.89 cents a day. And for that $0.34 cents or $0.89 cents per day, what do you get? You are going to get uh, better quality sidewalks and roads with fewer potholes. You're going to get consistent garbage pickup. 
You're going to get cleaner streets with more frequent uh, cleaning of public spaces. You're going to have properly maintained green spaces. We're going to be working on revitalizing our neighbourhoods. We will have resilient government finances. By the way, our reserve fund was basically depleted to almost... uh, um, well, $79 billion, which, which is effectively um, almost nothing. Um, we're going to build that up again. And for the first time in over a decade, you're going to have properly funded police and fire services. That's what you're going to get for your $0.34 cents a day. But I am, I'm curious. I mean, there must be two or three things you can point to where the dollars have gone to. I know either, I think it was a rental sure. office that you had shut down uh, recently. Yeah, yeah. But, but, okay. that's, but that's not going to be the only thing. And broadly speaking, are there two or, three, two or three things you can point to that say this is where some of the money was going in it and it isn't part of, let's say, core services? Sure. Okay, so you asked the question. Um, uh, the road tax, as an example, one and a half million dollars to study a road tax, uh, 130 grand for a position on the road tax uh, for uh, road tax that wasn't evidently going to happen. Um, right there, um, you know, you, you can argue, uh, you know, uh, money spent on uh, furniture in the city. Um, you know, there there was a, a potential seven hundred thousand um, dollar um, commitment to funding a class action lawsuit. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I can pull up a whole list of there, there, there are dozens of these examples that in isolation don't seem like a lot. But when you add them all up, they are significant. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, I, I, I would like the, the residents of Vancouver to know that we are not just focused on uh, reducing property taxes. We're working on affordability. So there are a lot of things that we are doing and that we will continue to do to make life more affordable for the residents of Vancouver. For example, the cup fee. That it, Look, the city tried it. It didn't work. It wasn't effective. That was $21 million a year of ta- or, you know, residents' money um, that was going to something that was having zero impact on improving um, the, the environment. Um, you know, the, the road tax, that would have cost residents of Vancouver between 5 and $30 each time they drove into the downtown core. What would so you, the, what would you, what can you put into place into the budget that deals with some of this stuff? I mean, are you going through it line by line where we can expect some of these programs that have been funded in the past maybe shut down, reduced, downsized, whatever it is, because I think you raise a very good point. Uh, you know, a 10.7% increase in property taxes is significant and even isolated. Uh, we're covering, we're doing a segment at 4.30 looking at the carbon tax, which goes from 11 cents a litre to 37 cents a litre by 2030. All these things collectively, not just Vancouver, but across the province, do add up. Is there anything you can put in the budget that deals with some of this stuff that, that, that you do not have to carry forward? Are you planning to, to downsize certain and eliminate other programs in the near future so that we can, so the residents don't have to see this stuff moving forward. Sure. And we're looking at everything. Um, so we've, we've actually spent the last four months um, going line by line uh, with all the various departments uh, in the city. So uh, that work has already started. And I also want to um, sort of change the narrative a little bit or bring in another sort of element to this narrative. Everyone's focused on reducing costs. And yes, we should do that. The other opportunity here is actually looking at different revenue sources um, that we can uh, come up with at the city so we can actually take pressure off the taxpayers of Vancouver. Um, you know, there, there are um, sponsorship opportunities and naming rights. These are the things that we're looking at. Um, best practices from other jurisdictions to bring them into Vancouver. So that way we can generate revenue that can be applied to these costs so the, the, the taxpayers of Vancouver do not have to carry the burden. And that's another way that we can sort of address the affordability issue in Vancouver and, um, you know, um, make sure the rate of uh, change, uh, you know, uh, the increase in property taxes um, like the one we're seeing, um, you know, this year um, aren't a thing of the future. Your Worship, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for your time. Today in the Globe and Mail, there was an article which focused on China's foreign influence campaign here in Canada. The article talked about uh, Chinese billionaire Zhang Bin, who had pledged a million dollars to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation and the University of Montreal's 
law school. Now, the billionaire um, wanted a statue erected of Trudeau Sr. and Mao Zedong together. Mr. Zhang is believed to be quite close to China's Communist Party. And according to an article yesterday in The Globe, a a Chinese diplomat instructed Mr. Zhang to donate a million dollars to the Trudeau Foundation and told him the Chinese government would reimburse him for the entire amount. Now, many watchers are saying it was an early signal that uh, China was already targeting Justin Trudeau, our present prime minister, uh, uh, in regards to their uh, foreign influence campaign. Now, this incident, uh, this conversation is led to have occurred as early as 2013. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, China's uh, influence campaign and the entire relationship between China and Canada is Nathan Vanderclip. He's an international correspondent with the Globe and Mail. He's also former Beijing bureau chief for the Globe as well. Nathan, good to see you. Great to be here. Uh, What, in your mind, what would you make of this incident in regards to the Pierre Trudeau Foundation and the broader context of this conversation about foreign influence peddling? We've known about this donation, this specific donation, for a number of years. It was made public at the time. There were questions that were raised because some of the people that were involved in making the donations had also been involved in some of these dinners with uh, Justin Trudeau that uh, that had sort of raised a lot of allegations of of sort of pay-for-access dinners, and and there had been a number of questions around that. But but I think we know a lot more now in the past week, uh, thanks mostly to the work of my colleagues in Ottawa, uh, Stephen Chasen and Robert Fife, uh, who have reported on really some extraordinary findings by Canada's security services, which have uh, documented uh, attempts to influence uh, Canadian politics uh, by the Chinese governments and Chinese diplomats in, in a number of different ways, one of which was this. I wrote about it in part because I had heard that the this money that was meant to go to this uh, to the University of Montreal and build a statue of of, of Trudeau, as you said, uh, the founders uh, the, the donors had initially said that they also wanted a statue of Mao Zedong, which which was quite a striking request, and it was turned down by the university. But the fact that it, the request would be made at all, I think, was a bit revealing of the people behind it. But I think what we're finding out now, thanks again to the reporting done by my colleagues, is is that this has gone far beyond that into uh, uh, sort of concerted efforts to change the way elections and electoral discussions are taking place in Canada by marshalling um, sort of elements of the community Mm -hmm. that are willing to sort of do things on Beijing's behalf. Mm -hmm. What do you you say to those who would say, look, uh, I remember years ago uh, when I was based in India, I interviewed the former head of India's foreign spy agency, and it was just, we would talk after he had left his position, but he said, you always reminded me that all countries spy, and there's always going to be a desire to extract information, have influence on countries, that our country is mature enough to actually deal with some of these uh, attempts to manipulate our election, at the very least, um, you know, curry favor over certain immigrant communities, that we're, we're stronger than that. What do you say to that? Well, I think that's been the argument from Ottawa, that what we have seen is, yes, that perhaps there has been some attempts to, to influence, but in fact, that it's not been enough to change the outcome of the election. But I think that needs to be set against what the outcome of that election was, and it wasn't a tight election. And so when you are talking about influence campaigns that may have shaped the outcome of multiple seats in parliament, I think you need to really ask yourself, is has this gone beyond pressure and into something that is that is changing the the degree to which Canadians can have faith in their electoral process. I think what you've seen out of the Liberal government so far, out of Ottawa so far, is a desire to say, no, 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 listen, we, sh- we should not question our elections. It, the outcome was what the outcome was. This, Even if you accept some of the allegations from the Conservative Party, the Liberals would still be in the majority. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody's putting that into question. But I think if, if, if people start to wonder, well, were all of the people who were elected, were they all elected through the ways that we would expect them to be elected? I think that starts to raise questions in people's minds. Mm-hmm. I think you raise a very good point. Even if uh, the security apparatus in this country did warn the liberals and the conservatives of, of what is occurring, uh, did warn them about a specific member of parliament, in this case, Hendong, uh, there's a part of me when I listen to that, I go, well, what was the reasoning, what was the political reasoning for them to still keep uh, Hendong as a candidate, even though they were informed by the security apparatus, I think there's a there is a desire for Canadians to know what the reasoning behind that number one uh, was. But I find it very interesting that some of this information is also leaking out now. That's sort of to a certain degree says the security apparatus in our country does not trust political parties. 
or that there's been a frustration that the message hasn't been taken very seriously. We've seen, I think, other countries move, I think, more rigorously on some of these questions regarding China than Canada has. Australia has one of the notable examples from Australia that I think is being looked at very carefully in Canada now is a foreign agents registry Mm -hmm. that Australia has put in place that Canada has yet to put in place. In the U.S., of course, you've seen much more strong actions with regard to uh, Chinese companies and the relationship between American companies and Chinese companies and what's allowed as far as exports and sanctions and all the rest. Uh, I, I think in Canada, there's been there's been a, a reluctance by the current government to do those things. I'm, I'm not sure we have a good explanation for why. There's some economic reliance on Canada, uh, on China from Canada. Not a great deal, but there is some of that. There are industries. The, the timber industry here, for example, exports uh, to China. We, of course, have mining exports that go to China. All of those, those are important. Um, but Canada, I think, has been reluctant to follow some of these very strong steps that have been taken some, by other countries. And you know, is that going to last? I, I don't know. I mean, certainly some of these uh, things that are coming to, to to the surface, I think, are helping to change how people are understanding um, uh, how they perceive what China's intentions are in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do, this conversation that you and I are having, that we're having broadly in this country, do you think finally it, it will get us to that point? Because here's a very good point. We had the issues of two Michaels. Uh, we've had the, the, the balloon incident. We've had research uh, that uh, scientists from China are conducting in our university universities here. We've had the broader conversation of Huawei's involvement with telecom. Do you think we're getting to that place to have a, a robust China strategy that, that perhaps may mimic what Australia did? Well, um, I think we've now banned TikTok from federal government devices, mm-hmm. so that should just about do it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I mean, I love the provincial government. They sent it after the announcement from the federal government. They, that evening, they sent out a tweet saying, oh, we're going to be doing the same thing because of recent events. I go, where the heck have we been the last Yeah, I mean, two years. individual states in the U.S. that have been ahead on this. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think Canadian public opinion has been there for a long time. You mm-hmm. look at the Asia Pacific Foundation poll from 2020 already, and this was sort of uh, in, in the lee of the Michaels um, and the opening act of the pandemic and all these other things. And, and the favorability attitudes toward China were down at like 13%, like really, really low. Um, and so I think, you know, so, some of the, the Canadian public sentiment toward China ha- has, has already sort of turned quite considerably over the last number of years. We have not seen that um, sort of that radical reshaping of Canadian policy on the federal stage. I, I don't know how long that can last. I mean, you know, we did not see a really material change from Ottawa, even after everything that took place at the two Michaels, even after this this very vivid example of of the willingness of a foreign counterparty to take prisoners to advance its political agenda. And so what will it take? I, I, I don't know. And what is a reasonable um, sort of attitude? You know, I, none of those things are clear. But uh, but but I think if you if you look to at some of the broader events, you you, you look now at, at this today, um, China kind of throwing in with Belarus, in addition to the partnership it's had with Russia. Um, you know, in, in the context uh, of a war in which Canada has been a very very strong supporter of Ukraine. You know, I, I, at what point? Do do these these sort of fault lines turn into fractures? Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, and and it's it, and it uh, and I'm glad we're having this conversation. Thanks uh, to to your newspaper and your work as well. Thank you for your time. Look forward to having you on again. Thank you. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders, no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Last night, of course, at Vancouver City Hall, uh, council there approved uh, the biggest tax increase in more than a decade. The city approved their 2023 operating budget. Uh, it put homeowners on the hook for a 10.7% increase in property taxes. We did speak to Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim at 3 o'clock. I wanted to talk, chat with uh, Christine Boyle. She is the councillor for One City, and she joins us now. Uh, Christine, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, do you agree with this increase? No, I, I agree with some of it. Um, you might have been as surprised as I was to see uh, Mayor Sim and the ABC majority who uh, were elected on you know, a combination of 
a number of expensive campaign promises and also a promise that they wouldn't cut services and they wouldn't raise taxes um, to see them oversee the largest tax increase in a century in Vancouver was um, was surprising to all of us. Uh, I'm glad to see that they didn't make dramatic cuts to the budget, particularly at the very last minute. Um, but, you know, the they must have known, particularly their returning councillors, that this promise of a lot of new spending without cuts or tax increases wasn't possible. It got them elected, and now um, they're facing the reality of governing, which is harder than campaigning. Uh, do you did you do you agree with their? Uh core can- campaign promise of hiring more police officers, more mental health nurses, uh, and that because some of the dollars that we've talked about here, the the 10.7% increase, goes towards uh, certainly hiring of more police officers, and even as the mayor said, that he felt that the fire department was even understaffed, and that's where some of the dollars are going as, uh, going, uh, as well. Do you, do you buy, do you agree with his core premise? Yeah, I, I am glad to see that funding going to uh, the fire department the last council made a commitment to the fire department's five-year growth plan. It's badly needed, uh, and I have been supportive of that all the way along. I was glad to see that continue to move forward yesterday. And I uh, support investing in community safety. It's a priority I hear from residents. Um, it certainly was a top issue in the campaign. I think the question for me is that we need to be making sure we're investing public funds in the most effective and impactful way possible. And and police are our most expensive response to crisis. And they aren't always the response that's needed. We can't police our way out of a mental health crisis. So we should be looking at if we're spending 30 or 40 million more dollars in a budget on improving community safety, how are we best allocating those funds in the in the most impactful way? So the, the example that comes to mind is that ABC promised 100 nurses in the campaign and Vancouver Coastal Health came back and said, actually, here's a better plan. And it laid out a range of services that are needed, including some nurses and a whole range of other healthcare professionals and peers, including non-police crisis response teams. That was their expert input from the field in terms of how we as a local city council can support people, our, our neighbors who are in mental health crisis. That's the conversation we need to be having. How are we making the best use of public dollars to get to the income, the outcomes that, that we all share, which is a, a safer and healthier and, and more inclusive city. Do you think it was the right decision to put these dollars towards hiring of 100 more police officers? Not all of them have been hired. I think there's 57. They're heading in that direction. Do you think that was a good use of dollars? Um, I think we uh, could probably get more impact from those dollars if we were looking at non-police crisis response teams uh, to be able to respond to the to divert calls from police and have other teams respond to calls where police aren't needed and in fact where we actually might have more effective responses if we're having uh, community workers, health workers, uh, peer supporters responding. You know, I, I think about something we heard from the crisis uh, uh, call lines um, that when people are, as a, as a difficult example, when people are unwell, uh, they're calling um, because of they're considering suicide. We need to send somebody to that home, and and we probably shouldn't be sending um, uniformed and, and armed police to that home. We need to be making sure we're sending the right call, similar the right person. Similarly, if someone's having a a kind of mental health crisis on the street, sending. Uh, a uniformed police officer might escalate that situation where if they're not violent, we should be sending uh, a different team of professionals who are better suited to uh, to address the situation. So that's the conversation I think we should be having. Mm-hmm. Of course, we need to be supporting our residents. How do we do it? First of all, in, in a way that's the most effective for the outcomes we want, and then also in a way that's 
cost-effective and makes the best use of our of our shared investments. My final question to you, uh, and Mayor Sim talked about this at the 3 o'clock hour, he basically says that, look, we need to have this, we need this increase uh, because a lot of core issues like maintenance uh, has been, have been underfunded in the city for the last 10 years, uh, community centres, and too often... Uh, many, many programs have been created that stay that stray from the core responsibility of of, of a city hall, which is uh, you know garbage pickup, maintenance of streets, police, fire, uh, potholes. I'm uh, generalizing a little bit here, but basically they've said, look, the, the the last few councils that we have have spent too many times on pet projects. You mentioned bike lanes, climate change issues uh, to a certain degree as well, and that the city needs to get back to its core competencies, core responsibility. And one of the reasons they've had to do this now, this 10.7 percent increase is to get back to to bring the level of funding for some of those uh, uh, departments back to a level that they should be at, number one, and even building a contingency fund for the city. What do you say to that argument? Sure. I, I would say a couple things. And the first is I absolutely agree with the importance of investing in those in public services and public infrastructure. I've spent four years, and, and one city has been spent four years pushing hard to make sure we're investing properly in in road safety in public washrooms and street cleaning and libraries and accessibility and um, in our basic infrastructure and the social infrastructure that people rely on these core services are important uh we invested in them in the last council um we need to keep investing in them and in fact for four years the npa and then abc councillors often fought against uh, tax increases that funded those um, important infrastructure and public service investments. I remember, uh, I remember those councillors calling a six percent tax increase outrageous. Um, and, and now look where we are. But the other thing I would say is this: look, uh, people throw around the idea that all that all these funds are being wasted on pet projects. Uh, you know, we can disagree on this, but. I don't think um, a busy, well-used bike lane is a pet project. It's an important investment in our transportation system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the ABC majority has spent the last three months combing through the budget. Three of them were on council for the last four years. I couldn't see any pet projects that they were able to identify in this budget. So I actually just um, don't think that that's the reality. We have... We have underinvested in our infrastructure, and I will be the first to say we should continue to make these important investments. I'm glad to see ABC change their tune and recognize that after four years of um, uh, of calling those investments outrageous. Ms. Boyle, we've run out of time. Look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you so much for your time today. Happy to join you anytime. You're listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, some Canadians will pay more to use their cell phones while traveling abroad beginning next week. Tell us and Bell say they are raising roaming rates effective March 8th and 9th, respectively. TELUS uh, said on its website that its customers will pay $14 daily to roam in the U.S., up from 12 while those de- uh, visiting other destinations will be charged $16. That's a $1 increase. Bell says users, are, users will face a daily $13 charge to roam in the U.S., up from 12 and $16 in other uh, countries, up from 15 uh, as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about these roaming charges uh, is Andy Brartek and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. And he, uh, as of on Monday show, was also trying to find a pesky mouse in his house, which we had him on the show. I want to get an update on that as well. Andy, welcome. Hi, Jazz. Should we start with the mouse or should we start with roaming charges? Well, I, I can cut it short. The mouse is still there. I thought I found the hole yesterday. I thought I plugged it up, but I set up my wireless cameras last night. Uh-huh. And sure enough, it came back. So after this interview, I'm pulling out my stove. I'm not giving up. I'm going to find this mouse hole one way or another. I love that you got all the technology, all the gadgets, and somehow this mouse is still eluding you, my friend. So good luck to, to that. We'll, we'll maybe get an update later this week on that uh, as well. well. Let's touch a little bit about the roaming charges. Why do we pay such high roaming charges? It's ridiculous. And you know, it, the, the, the reason why they're making this increase is because they're just trying to make money. The, the problem with the roaming charges is that 
we don't know the kind of arrangement that the big three are making with the other carriers. Mm -hmm. You know, that those are, that's private information. So we don't know if those rates were increased and that's why they're increasing our roaming rates. But I just think it's just for profit. And, you know, the fact that this happens just before spring break, that is not a coincidence. They know that we're going to be traveling and they, they know that that's another way that they can generate revenue because we're addicted. Can you imagine, Jazz, in this day and age trying to travel without your phone? That would be next to impossible for people. Mm-hmm. Are they doing anything different in Europe? I'm sure they have roaming charges there, but are they, are they as astronomical as the ones we as Canadians have to pay? No, the EU actually has um, a rule that they want that you can have the same type of service and same, you know, everything that you have in your local country. When you're traveling across the EU, you should have exactly that same type of service. However, that never transferred over into North America. And the, the thing is, is we do have alternatives now, you know, with the, the proliferation of what's called eSIM. So instead of having that physical SIM that we have in our card, they're now embedding it into the phone itself. So we're going to be able to change different carriers without having to physically move that SIM. And that gives you a lot of options when you're traveling because there's over 400 of these new service providers on the eSIM side for about over 190 countries. So if you're traveling now, my whole thing is boycott the roaming of the big three and start using these eSIMs. But it's not perfect because people don't get access to their phone and text messages when they're traveling, when they've um, you know, activated one of these eSIMs and deactivated their local SIM. So you would, you would just get the data uh, alone? Yes. And let's just do the U.S. for an example, because TELUS said they're increasing it up to $14 uh, a day mm-hmm. when you're roaming in the U.S. Now... For fourteen ninety five, if you use one of these uh, these eSIM providers, Aerolo, which is one of the most popular ones, for fourteen ninety five, you can get three gigabytes of data for thirty days in the U.S. So what you what you're paying for Telus for one day, you could have thirty days of access and three gigabytes. Because another thing you have to remember when you're roaming into mm-hmm. another country, you're still using your own data plan. You're not getting extra data and Everyone knows when you travel, you use your data way more. So you're probably going to come home with those extra daily fees and then data overages on top of that. That's why everybody needs to start looking at alternatives and just boycott this roaming altogether. If we all did it, I guarantee you those prices would go down. Yeah, I mean, we already pay uh, you know a good 25% more than, than a lot of uh, residents in Europe do it generally for their cell phones if not more and and for them to ding us even further with the with these uh, roaming charges i just i just i i'm actually annoyed it's one of those things in this country that we somehow have, have accepted that paying more for cell phone charges because we only have 38 million people over five time zones somehow justifies them charging more. They just don't. And I don't know why we put up with it. We don't need a fourth carrier. We need a fifth carrier and a sixth carrier in this country for some real competition because until then, we're just going to be stuck with these things. So I, I hopefully eSIMs take off because we need to do something. It is ridiculous that uh, you know Telus and Bell are doing this, and I'm sure Rogers will follow uh, as well. Andy, thanks for your time, and all the best to, to you with the, that pesky mouse. I hope you do catch it. Uh, uh, you're able to do it so this week. And if you do, let me know. We'll love to have you back on the show. Oh, oh trust me. Everyone will know when I catch this mouse. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the bane of my existence right now, Jazz. <laughs> well, let's talk about another government plan that does at times irk uh, folks, uh, taxpayers especially. Um, we all know climate change is real. And generally, the premise has been put a price on carbon. So we introduced the carbon tax in this country, uh, in this province, sorry, uh, in 2008. The premier at that time was Gordon Campbell. Uh, it was revenue neutral. You were given or sent a check uh, home every year in regards to the carbon tax you did pay. Well, in yesterday's uh, budget, uh, lots of um, spending, certainly in that budget, $37 billion in new capital spending for schools and hospitals and highways over three years, $8.7 billion in new programs spending as well, three years of deficits as well. But within that budget, uh, there was, of course, a conversation around carbon tax. It's going up significantly. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, that particular tax. Uh, Joining me now to talk about carbon tax is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jess. Good afternoon. So were you expecting uh, the the tweaking of the carbon tax and, and the numbers that we're talking about here? Were you expecting that? Yeah, I think um, 
part of this is the federal government has imposed on BC that they have to reach these targets. I think the fact that it was laid out the way it was, and it's happening as quickly as it is, uh, came as a surprise here in British Columbia. I think those watching uh, the sector very closely probably anticipated that these carbon tax changes were going to have to come to match uh, those federal requirements. But uh, it's a lot, and it's coming fast. And there's a lot of facets here that the provincial government needs to account for as it tries to hit those federal targets. Because... There are a lot of businesses in this province that have made decisions around the way that they are going to uh, fuel themselves and uh, heat their facilities and run their operations uh, that will start costing a lot, lot more over the next few years. And there are um, trickle-down impacts of all of this. You know, the carbon tax gets applied to what we pay at the pump, and we're going to see the carbon tax on gas go from 11 cents per litre now to more than 37 cents per litre in 2030. And, you know, for those who are going to be able to afford between now and then to get into an electric vehicle, uh, that won't have a big difference. But there'll be a lot of us, a lot of British Columbians, who won't be able to get into that transition at that point. There will be businesses who count on combustion engine vehicles for their fleets. Uh, There will be trucks that will require gasoline and diesel. Uh, So all those costs add up and it's continued pressure on business. Some of this is offset by credits that the government is putting into place to support uh, the impact it has on those that make the least. But for a lot of people, there won't be the right, the, the, enough crediting in place to support them. And that especially applies to some big emitters, and some big businesses that operate in BC. And, and their business is so crucial to the way that our economy operates. Uh, as you were saying, uh, the rate will increase every year and eventually will be up to 37 cents per litre. Right now it's 11 cents per litre every time you, you gas up. Uh, it goes up on April 1st of every year. Uh, right now, as I said, 11% per litre. So on April 1st, so uh, by the end of this month, you'll be paying 14 uh, cents per liter. Uh, so you, whenever you go um, buy gas, it's going to go up by another th- uh, three cents, another three cents after that, and then on and on and on it goes. But when you look at this also, Richard, uh, it also it's going to apply to propane. It's going to apply to natural gas. Uh, the tax increases are going to pl- apply to uh, jet fuel as well. So anytime if you're going on a trip to Mexico, I can guarantee you a mu- year after year, those costs are going to be uh, impacting your tickets as well. Uh, has there been any conversation in government? I, I, and the challenge I have with it, I, and I understand putting a price on carbon, and we want to make that energy transition. But we're one of the few jurisdictions, the subnational economies or national economies that brought in a carbon tax uh, back in um, when Gordon Campbell was premier. Not many jurisdictions followed what we did. Isn't it better to just pause it for a moment, wait for other jurisdictions to catch up, and then worry about moving forward from there? And we saw part of that, Jaz, with you know the way that Ottawa brought in its standards. BC was ahead of the game. Other provinces had to catch up to us. But now that catch-up has happened, and Ottawa is largely driving a lot of this. But the burden falls on the province. And one of the challenges is trying to create that offset for businesses. In uh, 2024, large emitters like pulp and paper mills, oil and gas operations, mines, they're going to actually be moving to a new carbon pricing model part of this is an attempt to better understand the challenges that those businesses face so rather than requiring emitters to pay the carbon tax up front and receiving incentive payments uh, the new system will exempt them from carbon tax and instead evaluate emissions performance on the basis of recording at the end of each year so it's a change that changes the burden but you're right about you know, where do we land? Like, do do governments fully understand the impact of imposing these taxes at such a, a rapidly increasing rate? Like, think about this. You, you mentioned Gordon Campbell brought this tax in. It was 15 years ago. Since between now and then, we're now at $50 uh, a ton. Mm-hmm. Seven years from now, we're going to be at $170 a ton. So we started in slow slowly moving up, and now we're at the point where we are growing this rate exponentially. And the hope, the the rationale behind this is to fuel our economy on renewable resources. Site C will be able to fuel something like 1.5 million vehicles year-round, electric vehicles. But 
The question is, where do we find the charging stations? Where do we find the vehicles? We know that companies are having a hard time getting the parts to get those vehicles to market. If all economies are moving this way, uh, can these car producers really find enough minerals to produce the batteries to get these cars on the road? There's a lot of assumptions being made here, Jazz, and I worry that um, the burden is going to fall on the consumer uh, government needs to be there to help support that burden if all of the assumptions they made uh, don't come to fruition. I had Jonathan Wilkinson on uh, the show last week uh, after they announced uh, 1,800 more uh, charging stations uh, would be uh, subsidized by the federal government, would be built here just in Metro Vancouver. It sounds wonderful, and it, it is a good news story, but you need thousands and thousands of more when it comes to range anxiety, number one. And number two, uh, you know, when you look at um, the cost of these electric vehicles, uh, you know, you, you look at the Ford F-150, that's uh, an expensive vehicle. Uh, Tesla is still going to set you back thousands and thousands of dollars, well past $50,000. Uh, That's not your typical family vehicles. Until electric vehicles, I would argue, get into that $25,000 to $35,000 sweet spot, maybe a little cheaper than that, uh, then we're talking. Uh, But to think in that time that people are going to continue to pay an increase in carbon tax when they still haven't purchased their electric vehicle, many condominiums, many buildings can't retrofit it. Uh, There's a lot of work we have to do as a society to make this energy transition, but to continue to uh, you know, jack up the carbon tax this fast in the context, within the context that 40% of humanity lives in China and India, 60% of humanity lives in Asia, their lifestyles, their, their standard of living is rising. That's a good thing. Uh, but to think that one jurisdiction here in British Columbia, the subnational economy with 5 million people, roughly equal to one-fourth the size of Beijing, one-third the size of New Delhi, can somehow have significant impact on the globe. And we're asking everyday people to pay this increase when they gas up, number one. Just today, I've had the mayor of Vancouver on trying to justify a 10.7% property tax increase for residents in Vancouver. It could be significantly higher for people in Surrey and many other communities. I mean, there is a limit here, and I, I, I believe that we should put a price on carbon, but we are so far ahead. I don't know how they sell this to the public over the next two or three years. Yeah, and, and one of the selling points now is, oh, it wasn't our responsibility. It was the federal government who brought it in. People don't care which level of government brings it in. They want to ensure the government's there to support them. And, you know, the province is trying to work through these climate action tax credits to support those who are hurt the most by this, but it's larger than just a financial burden. You mentioned it, the challenges of finding the car, the cost of the car, and then where are you going to charge it as well? Many buildings, as you mentioned, don't have the capacity to retrofit to have those charging stations inside the parking garages of large condominiums. One of the suggestions is that as we build density, people get away from their cars. People aren't ready for that yet. You know, getting your kid to soccer practice on a Wednesday night and to piano on Thursday and to book club on Friday, not all of that is accessible by transit, especially in a place like Metro Vancouver, where although we're building our transit infrastructure, there are a lot of black holes there. So selling this to the public is going to be hard when the pieces we need in place to subsidize it, to support it are not there yet around transit and then just a larger idea of business that relies on this and, and what are their alternatives uh, to, you know, change the way that they've been doing things for so long to, to you know, reduce their emissions, but like what are their options to get to that point and, and will they be um, sunk in cost far more before they can make those changes? Let's go to Rick in Surrey. Hi, Rick. Hey, guys. I, you know, I was thinking the exact same thing you did. It seems like Canada and specifically, you know, our, our Prime Minister, we're punishing Canadians more than any other country in the world in the name of climate change. And I just don't get it because this seems to be keep getting worse. You know what I mean? In terms of the cost, it's like we've handed the oil and energy industry to other countries already. That's gone. And the state seems to be doing the same thing. So I just don't understand why we're doing this. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think we have a role to play, uh, and you can't just expect developing nations uh, to, and hand the problem to them because the last 200 years we have burned fossil fuels to build our economies, and we have a role to play. But you, you can't 
isolate yourself from the family budget. It's just that simple for me. You know, the, the mom and dad, whoever you are, whatever family you're with, whatever you're doing every day, it costs money to live in this city. And to, to, to add up uh, this every single year, April 1st onwards, a three cents a liter, four cents a liter, add to that property tax increases, it, something's got to give. You're going to have a tax revolt and you're not going to solve the core problem that you want to. So I think you've got to be a little careful uh, when you start talking about these significant increases because there's no reward at the end of it in 2030 saying we, we're charging 37 cents per liter because I guarantee you they're not doing it in China, they're not doing it in India, and they're not doing it in the U.S. as well. Uh, so it's not just developing nations, it's it's the Western world as well. So you got to be careful uh, when you when you um, decide to add these types of costs to a family budget. Let's go to uh, Breton in Pitt Meadows. Hi, Breton. Hey, I think these taxes should be uh, spread more equitably, more evenly. And I don't mean across the world, I mean across BC. Because our LNG industries, they're already, um, they get it rebated. Anything over $30 a ton of CO2 is rebated. As, and uh, as if that wasn't enough, they're already getting breaks like uh, deferring construction costs and kickbacks on the income taxes. But just on the concept of carbon taxes, it feels like I'm starting to pay more carbon taxes than them. And these are the, the big polluters out there because we know how much of that gas leaks right into the air as they're extracting it. So mm-hmm. instead of making us pay more, maybe these other industries can start paying some. Brad, thank you for your call. I mean, it's not a, a bad point. I would argue that the, the 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 incentives that they get to get this project past the finishing line is one of the reasons they do that. Yeah, but sure. but they'll be paying a lot of tax over those 25 years of this deal, and it'll be, I think, a half a billion dollars in tax coming into the provincial government every single year once they're up and running. So there's important – but you, I get your point. You're absolutely right that we have some responsibility uh, in regards to this. Uh, Richard, some final words from you on this. Uh, the government's still Victoria and Fed's still – plan to move forward on this. I just I just worry that we are really on the verge of a tax revolt somewhere between the you know, municipal tax increases and what we're seeing here now at the pump. And part of it is going to be offsetting credits, but I don't think people see it that way. They don't add up all these credits that come from government and get rebated on your taxes. It doesn't feel that way when you show up at the pump and you look at those signs and see how much gas costs and you look at that big bill, you're going to show up for property taxes and see what that looks like. So there is a challenge government has here to explain the rationale behind it. To the last caller's point, though, there needs to be an explanation that these businesses contribute to the economy, but they also have to contribute back to cover the costs of what they are putting in in terms of emissions. And our economy has diversified so much away from this, and still crucial sectors for us, but there needs to be a better understanding that they are paying their share and not the burden falling on everyday Ab- British clients. Absolutely. Richard, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Well, for over 100 years, steam trains have been objects of mystery and romance. From the early 1800s till the 1950s, these giant fire-eating, smoke-belching, steam-pumping monsters have transported billions of people, billions of miles across the countries of the world. And even though they've uh, long since been made obsolete by the rise of diesel and electrical-powered trains, steam locomotives continue to capture the imaginations of millions of history buffs and train enthusiasts, including our next guest. Uh, Robert Turner is a Nanaimo resident who has spent decades photographing, researching, and documenting the last working steam railways around the world. His book, Last Steam Railways, will be published in three volumes. The first book in the series, Volume 1, The People's Republic of China, is out now. Volume 2 features the steam railways of North Korea, Southeast Asia, Myanmar, India, Pakistan, and Syria. And Volume 3 will look at East Africa, Southern Africa, Europe, and the Americas. Uh, Mr. Turner, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I was uh, going through Volume 1 over the last week or so, and uh, so much to talk about (laughs) here. I guess the first part, you know, where I want to start is, have have you always had an interest in steam railways, personally? Oh, yes, going back to to being a boy in Victoria. um, I uh, used to watch them out our living room window, and I guess that, that started it. Like many childhood interests, they... They carry on with us, and some of us uh, who are uh, are able to follow up with it in in our professions and workplace uh, situations. And I've been doing working in the heritage field in museums uh, since well for 50 years now, and um, doing a lot with with the history of technology and transportation history in particular. And um, so when I had more free time after I 
retired from museum work directly, um, I was able to uh, travel to places all around the world to um, look into these things, and uh, it's been a, a great adventure. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that technology, the steam train, has such a grip on our psyche? Uh, I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's a certain romance to it. Um, why do you think we spend so much time talking about it? Uh, you see it in Hollywood movies still. What is it about that technology, that era, that has such a grip, grip on us collectively? Boy, it's it's a complicated uh, thing. The the steam railways had such a an impact on our societies, um, changing the structure of cities because they could be expanded out into the countryside. It, they changed the way industries worked, like in the forest industry and in mining. Um, they had darker moments too when they were involved in uh, in the in colonization in in some parts of the world in wartime. Um, so they, they have a lot of impact, but they're also, I, I've thought about it a lot. There, there are a lot of other, um, aspects to it or our curiosity about the world. And before we could fly halfway around the world in a, in a day, um, if you hear, heard a, a steam whistle in the distance, it was a train or a steamship, um, that was heading off to, to faraway places and, that made it romantic, and people wrote about their their travels and adventures. Um, Kipling and poets and songwriters and and others um, brought this into their into their work frequently. Mm-hmm. It, um, it 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 goes deep in in so many different cultures um, from different countries and. Um, so many people were directly involved in it too, in in terms of their families. Uh, the railways, and uh, just about everywhere, were were and are uh, some of the largest employers. Um, so that if you talk to uh, so many people, mm-hmm. their grandparents or great grandparents or perhaps their parents uh, have have worked for the railways in many cases for many generations. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a part of our collective and our individual stories, too. Now, Volume 1 focuses on the People's Republic of China and uh, the, the steam railways in that nation. Uh, I was posted in China many years ago as a Global Nationals Bureau Chief. I think it was 2010 or 2011. I got the opportunity to take the first ride on their high-speed rail between Beijing and Shanghai. It was a wonderful yeah. uh, train ride, but it certainly wasn't a steam engine. No. Uh, but uh, give me a sense of, and, and, and like most developing nations, there's a rush to be modern. Uh, but give me a sense of, of the role the steam engine played in the development of China? Well, it, um, it was there early on uh, before World War II, and mainly in, 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 in coastal areas and in, in reaching inland to, to some resource areas. But uh, after, the, after the war and the Chinese Revolution, um, when Mao came to power, China was in pretty bad shape. The uh, country had suffered really horribly during during World War II with Japanese occupation and uh, the civil war that had been going on before that. So there was a real uh, emphasis on, on rebuilding the country. And, and from the point of view of the Chinese government, that meant essentially heavy industry, steel and coal mining and um, the making of cement, all, all things needed for reconstruction and to also for an armament industry, because China was uh, building up its military at that time as well. So in the 50s, 60s, and up into the 1980s, China built 10,000 steam locomotives. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> That's quite number. a bit. And now, um, are there any steam engines there now? Like, Are there one or two perhaps left, or are they, are they all now gone? Just, just, a, just a few. Um, one of the last places they were working in any numbers was at a big open pit coal mine in uh, western China called Sandaling, and uh, they were they were working up until um, well this this past this winter, but uh, there may still be one or two there, but uh, they they were used in they had fifty at, overall around that number, and they were taking the coal out of the this huge 
mine and the the overburden out the other end of the mine uh, and um, they were um, this was really hard working steam steam locomotives at their uh, <laughs> what can we say <laughs> dirtiest <laughs> yes um, Aside from that, there are, there are just a very few here and there that are uh, probably well, are in, in, in industrial plants and may, may go out to the main line taking a, a freight car or two, but effectively it's, it's, it's over in China now. Uh, um, I, I was lucky in, in catching a lot of it before it ended uh, to take photographs, which I, I love doing, and uh, meeting people who were working on the on the railways as well. Um, one of the things that, that really came to mind as I was doing this was how much um, what the railways were, do- were doing and the people working on them were doing mirrored what had gone on in British Columbia and in the U.S. and uh, this part of the world before the coming of the diesels. And um, I'd interviewed many uh, veterans going back to the early 1900s from, from here, and they were describing their, their work and what, the, what it was like to, to hand-fire a locomotive in the mountains, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was able to ride with, with some of the crews on the Jitong Railway in Inner Mongolia, and watching them was, was just like being in a time machine. Um, these young guys shoveling coal as fast as they into the firebox of the locomotive uh, taking ten-minute shifts, two firemen taking turns, just wow, wringing with sweat. Wow. Um, do 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 you think the the rail today, the trains of today, will hold the same romance as the steam as the steam railways did? Um, I think for certainly for for a lot of people, yes. Uh, probably for different reasons. Um, I. <laughs> They don't have that call to faraway places. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more, I think, a part of daily life, and uh, but not in the not in the same um, intensity. Um, not many of us in British Columbia have had a chance to to ride on a, on a train. Uh, you can't do it on BC Rail anymore, ex, uh, except for the uh, Rocky Mountaineer or on Canadian Pacific. Same story, and uh, um, where. We were growing up in the 40s or the 50s. We might have taken the train to visit relatives in Nelson or Revelstoke. Now you drive the car, and so you won't have that connection. But um, I think it's it's still there. But uh, uh, it'll take us a generation to figure that one out. <laughs> I think so too. My final question to you: How do you go about your research? We don't have a lot of time here, but I'm very curious because this is such a, a your work is global. Uh, you're based in Nanaimo, but it's global. You, you're not just focusing on China. This is the first volume. You've got North Korea, you've got Pakistan, you've got India, Myanmar, then you've got the rest of Europe and Africa. Uh, how did you go about putting all of this together and organizing all of this? Well, it, it's uh, I've been lucky in knowing um, uh, a number of people, uh, especially in, well, really from all over, from Canada, the U.S., and in Germany, and, and in the U.K., have pushed share this this interest and I've traveled with them uh, yeah I usually travel with a, a couple of friends sometimes a few more it's uh, makes it more fun and it's also safer when you're walking around coal mines and places like that um, I do a, uh, a lot of <laughs> building bookcases to hold hold the books I buy and uh, there's some wonderful websites as well where uh, travelers have reported on on what's going on, and um, for example, on China, there was a there's been an active kind of internet exchange of information about where uh, uh, steam operations are, are going on and when they're being retired and replaced with the, the high speed network that you were speaking of, and um, so that that's helped immensely. So we we keep in touch, and all being well, I'll be. In uh, in Bosnia uh, in the fall, um, there's in in uh, around uh, inland from Sarajevo, there's a mining district that's still using some locomotives that were 
built in Germany during World War II, um, quickly built ones for, for the for war service, but they they were transferred eventually to Yugoslavia, and uh, there are still half a dozen of them there. Uh, they shouldn't be um, for really any reason of technology, but uh, Bosnia hasn't had the the funds to replace them uh, with the horrible civil war that went on um, in the country in the 90s. And they have the the experienced people who can keep these these antiques, if you like, still running and, and service them. Um, I was in the workshop uh, there a few years ago, and uh, they were making castings to make replacement bearings uh, on the sand floor of the of the workshop on one end, and at the other, there was a young engineer there who had his laptop plugged into sensors all over the boiler of a locomotive, uh, testing the, the steel to make sure it was going to be safe. <laughs> well, there you go, a little bit of modern technology and, and old technology. Uh, Mr. Turner, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, uh, the book is called Last Steam Railways. Volume 1 is out. It's focusing on the People's Republic of China, of course, but the volumes 2 and 3 will be coming out, and it focuses on, focuses on many other countries from Asia uh, and Europe as well. Mr. Turner, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate it. Well, nearly four years after recreational cannabis was legalized in Canada, there are many municipalities across this country that still outlaw pot shops, uh, and many are unwilling to loosen their restrictions. In fact, uh, from Ontario to Manitoba and British Columbia, there's about 100 municipalities that do not have um, any cannabis shops. 27 of them are in British Columbia alone. Um, some local governments here in BC have uh, enacted bylaws that do ban cannabis stores. Others say they'll accept applications, but generally when an application comes in, they deny all that uh, they receive. Now, the two largest holdouts in our province uh, are probably Richmond and Surrey, um, and those two communities collectively um, have about almost 800,000 residents. Uh, There's a lot of them. Well, the Surrey Board of Trade has released its Cannabis Industry Needs Report, and it calls for the inclusion of cannabis retailers in communities like Surrey and some reforms that are required as well. Joining me now to talk about uh, the report is Anita Huberman, President and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Anita, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. So uh, why is the, has this been made a priority for your organization? Uh, generally, when you talk about the Surrey Board of Trade, bigger issues like taxation uh, and attracting businesses to communities uh, like Surrey, which are very fast-growing, why the focus on cannabis? Well, number one is uh, we've had an influx of cannabis businesses that have uh, joined the Surrey Board of Trade because they want to be in Surrey. Uh, so we're speaking on those uh, their behalf. Um, and secondly, you know, the cannabis industry actually is a boon uh, in, for the community in terms of providing tax revenues so the city can invest in infrastructure. Um, and, and really, you know, the focus is getting rid of or reducing the need for the illicit illegal cannabis market. And so uh, these are cannabis retailers that want to be in Surrey. They want to be able to exist in a responsible way. And uh, what we're calling on is for the city of Surrey to allow them to operate in Surrey. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the hesitation in your mind? Well, the hesitation is, uh, you know, there is no clear pathway right now in Surrey uh, to have an efficient cannabis regulatory framework with bylaws, licensing, permitting, where they should be located, uh, the engagement and consultation with the community, because there still seems to be a stigma related to the cannabis uh, industry. So there needs to be education. Um, but uh, I know that we, uh, as it, well, the city of Surrey had started the journey uh, in 2017, 2018. Uh, The previous council, they didn't want to have any cannabis retailers within the city, but uh, we believe that this new mayor and council in Surrey are exploring the possibility 
of having cannabis retailers within our city, exploring it in a, in a very responsible, strategic way. Now, the provincial government and the federal government want municipalities to decide on their own whether they wish to move forward. Uh, in the U.S., you still, uh, which it may sound odd to us, but there are many counties in the United States that, that, that are dry. They don't sell alcohol. Uh, what is wrong with having uh, dry communities here in the metro Vancouver? Uh, my term, not anybody else's, but perhaps they don't want cannabis because that's what the citizens don't want to see. That, look, if you can't buy in Surrey, you can certainly probably go next door to other communities and purchase uh, cannabis, um, legal cannabis. Uh, is it that big of a priority for City Hall if they think that citizens don't wish to have any cannabis retailers in their community? It may not be, it may not seem like a, a big priority, but what we're trying to do is remove the illicit market. Uh, we are a border city here in Surrey, and we're talking about uh, crime prevention. Uh, we're talking about uh, the opportunity for cannabis retailers to exist, uh, for example, in alignment with uh, serving uh, those that need it for medicine. Um, and, and the other thing is, if it doesn't exist in Surrey, yes, they're going to go elsewhere to purchase it, but then that tax revenue uh, is going to go elsewhere uh, within those cities. Why is Surrey being left behind? And here we are facing a significant uh, proposed property tax increase uh, for residents, and who knows what it's going to be for businesses, even higher, I expect. You know, we every single ingredient in the overall revenue recipe for a city needs to be taken into consideration. Uh, the people who oppose cannabis uh, retailers in their community, I'm sure they're still there. What makes you think this council will go down that route, uh, you, uh, considering the last one didn't? Well, I think this mayor and this council, uh, for the most part, are, are open to having a dialogue about it. And I've had conversations uh, you know, with the city about it, and I know that they're looking at it. Um, of course, uh, the previous mayor and council, um, you know, they didn't. It was full stop, no cannabis retailers. So I think there, the door is open, at least for dialogue with Surrey. Uh, and so we remain hopeful. And, um, you know, this is really a missed opportunity in our economy if we don't, uh, in a responsible way, in a, in a regulatory framework way, uh, in coordination with BC and federal governments uh, to really reduce the red tape, uh, to really focus on, um, you know, the taxes that are, uh, you know, really not making the industry thrive and survive right now uh, in the context of uh, regulatory burdens by the BC and federal governments. I think this is an opportunity that Surrey needs to realize. I'm curious, would, would these retailers that are members now of your organization, would they be okay with uh, approvals to operate in Surrey if they, let's say, if it was a um, an industrial area, a commercial area, but, but predominantly away from retail areas, traditional retail areas, perhaps it'll be a little bit quieter, but at least they could operate in the community. Would they be okay in getting licenses in strictly you know, warehouse areas, industrial areas? I think they're open to that. Um, you know, their their preference is to have a dialogue about what makes sense, and um, and I think you know they they just want to have that opportunity within uh, Surrey, which is different than other cities, of course. Uh, but uh, it could be in um, a shopping center. It could be in an industrial park. Um, it, it you know it. It, it does have to, ha- there has to be a conversation with the industry and with government. Government cannot just do this in a silo policy framework. Anita, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, Jess. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.